Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Ravi, how you doing? I'm good. Uh, before we started recording, you said you have a lot going on. What's happening in your world? You know, it's just like things are heating up in various cities with Veterans Community Project. And then, you know, my book, Invisible Storm, comes out July 5th. Available now for pre-order, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Such a good book. Such a good book. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, like the publicity stuff, like all the planning and all that is starting. And so it's like, I'm glad it's starting. But there's a lot to balance. And so it's just a lot's going. It's all good stuff. But here's a little thing that I figured out to save me some mental space. A buddy of mine who I work with gave me this tip on screen time, which is to change my phone completely to grayscale. And I did that a couple of weeks ago. And my screen time is down like 25% because oh, it's amazing. Like, stuff is just less interesting. I'm less likely to click on stuff. Well, I'm going to do that. You know you know what my trick has been. I think you know this because you follow me on social media. <laughs> yeah, you put it in a box or something. Every morning, I lock it in a box and I can't access it. Actually, this morning I did it and my alarm went off while it was in the box. <laughs> so literally, I was sitting for four hours. I had to like muffle the sound because I could not get my phone out of the box. But now like our, my staff, who's out most of this week, they're still texting me stuff sometimes. They may need to get in touch with me. But I can't respond. I can't get on the phone. So I literally am emailing back and forth with people in conversations that should be handled over the phone. So I'm I'm a fun guy to work for is what I'm yeah. saying. Basically, your uh, optimization of you personally is just making things harder for the people Horrendous. around you. <laughs> just try to it's working out for you. picture being our social media director for me anyway, knowing that how much I hate social media outside of Instagram and then trying to get me to approve a TikTok, knowing that I don't have my phone for four hours in the morning. And shout out to Alana, who has infinite patience. <laughs> All right. Well, um, with that, let's get into uh, this free speech stuff like that. Let's get into what's going on. All right. New York Times published an opinion piece a few days ago. That was titled, America Has a Free Speech Problem. And essentially what they did was they quoted some data from a survey that they'd given a poll 
that showed that Americans, generally speaking, are concerned about the status of free speech in this country. And, you know, a majority of both Democrats and Republicans and independents said that they routinely hold their tongue. Only 34 percent of Americans believe they enjoy free speech completely, which we can unpack what that means. 84 percent said that there's a serious or somewhat serious problem of people not being able to speak their minds because of fear of retaliation, right? And then they basically say that this is both a problem on the right and the left. And the reaction to this was very swift, especially from the left. A lot of people, including AOC, clapped back at the New York Times. I'll read you her tweet. AOC said, so many people's lives are actually endangered for their views, yet these First Amendment screeds only seem to crop up in defense of the historically powerful claiming minority status. Until it shows up for everyone, it's merely a service for the powerful, not a challenge of it. Jason, what say you? So this is one of those things where I read the the editorial and I was like, well, this is a very compelling case. I think I agree with this. And then I read the other links that you sent, which were to people on the left and the right who disagreed with what they were saying, mostly on the left. And I was like, oh, that's a really good point. So I couldn't decide what I think. And I think where I came out was... I suspect this is like never not been the case. Like I suspect that like I was just trying to think of like when was the time in American history where free speech was really truly vibrant culturally and like very few people felt that there wasn't anything that they could say. And I can't come up with that time. And to me, the most compelling argument by somebody on the left that you had sent in the sort of selection of things to read was when somebody made the point in there that the New York Times like looks at it as almost a problem that black respondents feel like they are more free to talk about race now than they were 10 years ago. And it's like, no, that definitely is a good thing. <laughs> you yeah. know, and they were saying, whereas white respondents don't feel that way. And it's like, well, right. That, that's <laughs> the direction we should go. I think that's a good thing. There are certain things, uh, you know, longtime listeners, no surprise. I am on the corner of I think this is a problem that's getting worse in our lifetime. Obviously, there are periods of our country's history in which this was in some ways way worse. Like a lot of people focus on the famous Oliver Wendell Holmes case of like fire in a crowded theater, like where a lot of our First Amendment jurisprudence comes from, not really realizing that that was a case of Yiddish speaking socialists who were imprisoned under, I think, like the Sedition Act or some crazy law for speaking out against World War One, So we've had some real problems with free speech. And also it's important to note that there's First Amendment culture and then there's the First Amendment. The First Amendment is very narrow, as you've pointed out in this podcast before. It's about the government not being able to shut down speech. But we have a First Amendment culture, meaning we like to, as a society, we want to be permissive of a range of viewpoints. And that's what I think is in trouble here. And I think it's worth mentioning that pushback against ideas that people find offensive and wrong is part of free speech. And I think institutions should be allowed to say who like writes an article for them or appears on, on their broadcast or whatever. But I do think, to your point, there is something unique about this environment. Number one, I think social media makes it the, the nature of the pushback and the public nature of it and, and the national conversation around everything so much bigger, right? Like you remember the woman who made like an off-color joke about South Africa before she got on the airplane and then was sitting on an airplane while basically the whole world was debating like 
the end of her existence. <laughs> that would never have happened before. Yeah. And she was like, she didn't have like a lot of followers or anything either. No. She just like went viral, if I recall. There's also, I think, a constantly shifting series of definitions of what it means to be racist, sexist, homophobic, and all that, which we can unpack. I've seen this definitely on the left where I've often had a hard time keeping up myself. And I, I read a lot of shit and I spend a lot of time with a lot of people on the left and I've had a hard time figuring things out. And then I think there's this sense that words are violence. I've heard this before from a lot of people. And like we've moved beyond the crowded theater definition of clear and present danger of speech to like a sense that hurting somebody's feelings or making somebody feel uncomfortable, even if it's unintentional and even if it's you couldn't have predicted it is wrong. And I can I can go through some examples of it. But I find that stuff problematic. But I'll stop there to say I do think this is an issue. I think it's an issue on the right, which we talk about, but I also think it's an issue on the left. Yeah. And and I guess what I struggle with is, you know, other than like what you're doing with the last debate and, you know, what some people I think are trying to do with having, you know, more civil conversations about important topics, I'm not sure what there is to be done about this, right? right? Like to me, in the balance, it's like just the fact that in that poll that black respondents are, you know, are saying that they feel more comfortable talking about race than they did 10 years ago. A big part of me is like, well, that's worth all the other trouble, right? So yes. I'm like, because it, it's really hard to figure out how you have a more open and inviting debate for various sides of these really divisive topics while still making sure that the people who have traditionally felt like they can't speak their minds are feeling more free to speak their mind. It's like really hard to do both. Right. And my question is, can we preserve one without the other? And I th I think like at least and, and people can only ask where they sit. Right. From where I sit, I have two different hats. I am founder of Arena, which is a progressive space. And I have so much experience there seeing this dynamic play out where a group of people jumped on this guy. I didn't even know who he was, who basically got on the slack and said, he was supporting some candidate for Maryland governor, I think it was, or senator, who happened to be a white guy. And a bunch of people jumped on him saying, we don't ha we don't need any more white candidates, et cetera. Interestingly, a lot of those people were Bernie Sanders supporters, so I'm not sure how they square <laughs> that, that position. Well, they were like, we have Bernie, we, we have yeah. enough. Yeah. They were like, <laughs> yes. That's, yeah. he, he uh, was the, there was room for one more, and it was him, and I'm sorry, there's no... <laughs> and I'm not caricaturing. That was literally what they got yeah. mad at him for. And I, I, I could tell you a hundred stories like that, but I do think like there is a fragility to different viewpoints that is, I think, misguided both morally and electorally for us where we're, if we're, the thing that worries me is if we're so fragile about these conversations, they're going to happen without us. Yeah. And I think the mission of this podcast, for instance, when it comes to these divisive issues is it's not to give aid and comfort to them, right? It's to make sure that, as you said, we're participating in the discussion in order to try to win the argument, right? And yep. and we talk about this all the time, that you you can't win these arguments by pretending they don't exist, right? Exactly. doesn't mean that you have to you know, provide a space for them. Like there is, there's going to be a space for them on the right, but it's important to be aware of it. And I think what this comes down to really is people get upset when like the New York Times puts a, a more regressive opinion on the editorial page. And, yeah. and I see the argument, right? Because, you know, some people say, well, that's it's censorship. If you're saying we shouldn't hear from that side. Well, but then again, it's not like there's a lack of platforms for this. Right. And so so I think it's it's a worthwhile debate. The thing is, I don't want the platforms to be like, all right, let's put the right wing views at the right wing platform and the left wing views and left wing platforms that have nowhere where we, we meet in good faith. Right. That's where I want to preserve is like, all right, if you believe 
for instance, that, you know, I was interviewing somebody this morning who is a libertarian who literally doesn't believe the government should fund bridges. I find it an absolutely out there view in certain ways, but I learned so much in that conversation, you know, about like how expensive things are and why they shouldn't be an alternative ways we could go about building bridges. I'm not convinced of it, but I found it like a really interesting conversation. Part of what I think there is a tension here is like right now, there are so many people I know who feel like they're having a hard time distinguishing between views they disagree with and views that aren't legitimate, right? And that's where I want to try to convince people to have a little bit more leeway with people to say your view is, is not illegitimate. I might not agree with it, but it's still like worthy of like a discussion and debate. And you're, you're not going to be disinvited from my dinner party because you're, you know, you hold that view, you know? Well, what I think gets left out of all of this is that when people, like when the right talks about like the woke corporate mob, right. Or when, you know, and then we, on the left, like we will talk about like using your buying power as like, like a vote. And really what we're talking about is this, this is a free market. Like this is what the free market is. It includes ideas. So it's not like, it's not like a company goes, so in most cases, they're not just like, we don't like that idea. So we will stop promoting it or we will stop advertising on that network. No, what happens is right. they go, if we do that, we're going to lose money because a lot of people feel strongly about this and they're going to stop buying our product. So what it comes down to is like, is that an issue of free speech culture being hampered? Or is that just consumer culture? Is that just buying behavior? Which brings us to our naked pitch for Harry's razors as an advertiser. Yes. So, well, the story here is that the Daily Wire had Harry's razors as an advertiser on their shows. But then I think somebody on Twitter noticed this and called it to Harry's attention. And from what I understand, Harry's pulled their advertising from the Daily Wire and the Daily Wire, which is a conservative outlet for those who don't know, very conservative outlet that unfortunately I read for research a lot. And wow, like no need, like, you know, like I have a pretty high tolerance as we've established in the last session for views that are different than mine, but sometimes they're just bad faith, right? There's a difference between, hey, libertarian people who are like, think the government should be smaller because they truly believe that versus people who are truly out there to manipulate people and divide them. And Daily Wire is the latter for sure. But they're not just out there to manipulate people, Jason. They now are launching their own razor company, apparently. I can't tell if this is a spoof or not, but I think it's real. This is like a thing with Shapiro and all these people now. They're starting all these things, their own social media companies, their own studios, now razor companies. Like, how should we think about this? So- First of all, like the article on the Daily Wire website, like which is basically a press release for their razors, yeah, is fascinating because one, it's just so plain about like, hey, just give us your money instead. Like it's mm-hmm. not like like they didn't even bother to be like, hey, we're gonna give the money to this charity. They're just like, give it to us. Don't give it to them. Give us your money, which is fine, I guess. And then on top of that, their website for it. Is I'm not even gonna. I don't want to promote their razor, but their website for it is just a negative. It's not even about their company. It doesn't even have their company's no. title in it. It's just a going negative on on Harry's. So it's like yeah. dragging, you know, what our politics have become into this kind of marketing, where it's like you don't need to be for this razor. You just need to be against this other razor. Yeah. So that says a lot, I think, about what motivates folks on the far right, like in terms of their buying, in terms of their voting. So. But what I come down to on all this is like, they don't really care. This is yeah. just like, like 
we knew this already, but like the Daily Wire is a business and it's a, you know, they'll sell razors. They'll sell whatever the hell you want in order to make money. And like the bottom line here is Harry or whoever runs this company. I hope it's a Harry. Look, we're going to start our own razor company if you don't sponsor this <laughs> Yeah, we're going to start our, like, win people over, uh, you know, to our side razor, like, which I don't even know what the audience is for that. I'm sure there's a way we can white label a, a razor company called Majority 54 Razors. I don't want to do it, Harry's. Don't make us do it. You know where to find us. So it's spring break right now in the Candor household, which means I get to spend about 30 more minutes every morning with my Helix mattress. And like, it's good for my back. It's good for my mental health. It's it's just, you know, it's extra quality Helix time. And I appreciate it. And one of the reasons why I sleep so well on this mattress is because they have this quiz, Jason, that you and I have both taken, and it takes just two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Everybody's unique, and Helix knows that, and they have several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, firm mattresses. Mattresses great for cooling you down if you sleep hot, and even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. I took the Helix sleep quiz, and I was matched with the Midnight Lux mattress, as you were, Jason because I sleep on my side. Just go to helixsleep.com slash majority54, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash majority54. That's helixsleep.com slash majority54 for up to $200 off and two free pillows pillows. Jason, I talked last week about the fact that I picked Italian back up. This weekend, I was watching Formula One and the Ferrari team came in first and the, the head of the Ferrari team was just like talking nonstop Italian. I understood a lot of it because of our sponsor, Babbel. They're a language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. This is an addictively fun product, Jason. Um, like they have multiple modes of learning. And so you never get bored and you're never just sitting on the same kind of content over and over again. They mix it up and it's super practical. And I find that, you know, using this app makes it so I, I could just kind of understand what's happening around me in Italian. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons are created by over 100 language experts. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to babbel.com and use promo code majority54. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com code majority54. Babbel, language for life. Let's move on to the great state of Missouri. You have, is that how I say your state? Missouri? Missouri? Missouri. Missouri, also acceptable. Um, yeah. You're, you're not wrong either way. Other than having a lackluster off season, what else is happening <laughs> in the great state of Missouri? So I'm sure a lot of people saw this, that there were uh, new abuse allegations, domestic violence and abuse allegations against former governor Eric Greitens, who is now a candidate for the United States Senate. I'm sure people are at least vaguely aware or, or remember that when he was governor, he had several scandals that led to his resignation, one of which had to do with campaign finance. Another had to do with abuse of a woman who uh, like it was a sex scandal that involved him abusing and like basically imprisoning a woman in his basement who was not his wife. And, you know, he later ended up having to resign so he wouldn't be impeached and removed by a Republican legislature, by the way. So now he's running for the United States Senate. He was, may still be, but at least was you know, nominally the front runner in that race. These allegations 
are actually not like allegations that were made in a public setting. These are from his divorce and custody proceedings where his ex-wife, who now lives in Texas, has detailed these in the divorce pleadings. And they include domestic violence on his part toward her, but also violence toward his children. In a 41-page request to the court, Sheena Greitens outlined allegations of physical abuse and threats of political influence, saying that her former husband knocked me down and confiscated my cell phone, wallet, and keys. And in another incident, she saw him cuffing our then three-year-old son across the face, yanking him around by his hair. She says he also threatened to use his political connections in their custody battle. Now Missouri politicians from both parties are condemning Greitens, calling for him to leave the Senate race. First of all, this is not surprising. People who know Eric Greitens, I used to know Eric Greitens, like back when, before he was running for office, you know, like it's not surprising. It's very sad, but it's not surprising. Now, what's also not surprising is Eric Greitens' response, which was to refer to the mother of his children as like basically to imply that she is crazy and making all this up and that he's going to- Oh my to God, I, I missed that part of it. Yeah. Jesus. The Senate hopefuls campaign has fired back accusing Sheena Greitens of mental illness and emotionally abusive behavior, writing in a statement, his ex-wife is engaged in a last-ditch attempt to vindictively destroy her ex-husband. So it's really horrible what he's continuing to put his family through. And, you know, I, I had met Sheena Greitens before, d didn't know her well, but like always seemed to be a very good person. I'm very happy that she's at least mostly out of this situation and I feel terrible that she's been dragged into it. But what's even worse is Greitens is now claiming that this was Mitch McConnell and others in the establishment of the Republican Party working with her to put these out. Now, like she didn't put these out. She put them in a court pleading. And then her response to that claim was like, I'm going to go ahead and let the affidavit I filed in court stand on its own. I have no interest in being a part of this. So this is just to say that, you know, Eric Greitens continues to be a truly her horrendous person who is a dangerous person. And I think that the important thing here is that while Josh Hawley, who has endorsed somebody else in the race, has, you know, said that this is terrible, he said, like, he doesn't belong in the Senate, he belongs in, in jail. And, and the other candidates have all come out against him. What I want to know and what none of them have said uh, have answered yet is if he's the nominee of your party for the United States Senate, are you going to vote for him? We know the answer to that, right? That's the Roy Moore situation, right? Now, is he a front runner for the seat? I haven't been following it that closely. He was. He he has been leading in the polls. Uh, we'll see what the polls say after this. He, here's my question, or, or here's why I want this question asked of them now, is because clearly their strategy is to try to either force him out of the race or force him into a political position where he's not viable and he can't win the race so that they never have to answer that question. So I think they should have to go on record now. And yeah, you're right. They're desperately hoping they don't end up in that situation because this isn't like, like, you know, if it were a governor's race, maybe some of them would feel more comfortable sitting out because they're like, okay, four years with a Republican legislature and a Democratic governor, nothing, not much is going to happen anyway, but it's a U.S. Senate race and it could determine control of the U.S. Senate. It. So, you know, I mean, they asked McConnell and McConnell was like, well, they'll figure it out. Trump was kind of flirting with Crichton's, right? Like oh, yeah. that was like his guy. Yeah. And may so we'll still be. What, what Who knows? With Trump, this may maybe he's like, yeah, that's it's my kind of dude. I don't know. Yeah. He's one of those. Uh, he's of the J.D. Vance 180 school of politics, right? Like he was even a Democrat. Oh. right? And then he became a Republican. Yeah, because I'm not sure I've done this whole thing on, on this podcast before. Yeah, like, let's do it. Let's just let's just uncork it. Yeah. Here. So why not? Like Eric Greitens is a guy who, you know, I got to know 
prior to him getting involved in politics because he had this organization called the Mission Continues, which was and is a great organization, you know, for returning veterans. He created it. I got involved with it as a supporter. That's kind of how we got to know each other. At that time, he was a Democrat, very much so. Like Stephen Weber, who's a recent guest on this show, Eric was there in person, drove to Columbia, Missouri for Stephen's campaign kickoff in 2008 for the state house. Like he drove 16 hours with our former Democratic governor in a car to Denver to see Barack Obama accept the nomination in person. That That's who Eric Greitens was. Not but a few months before announcing his candidacy as a Republican uh, in 2016 for governor, he was still meeting with the DCCC to figure out whether he should run as a liberal Democrat for a congressional seat. And then he announces for the U.S. Senate as like, at the time, a Tea Party Republican, like a far right conservative, which I'm sorry, he did not make that transition in that amount of time in a genuine way, like which obviously. So that's the kind of guy that we're, we're dealing with. And um, well, well, we'll keep an eye on it. It's hard to keep track, Jason, of all these stellar politicians you have in your state. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh my like, God. <laughs> like the rest of that race. Let's talk about the rest of that race. You got you got Eric Schmidt, who. He used to be every Democrat's favorite Republican to work with because he was like a reasonable guy. Like I did multiple pieces of legislation with him when he was in the state Senate and I was secretary of state. Also, we did a trade mission to China together. I have these photographs somewhere on my computer that he and I took of each other at the Great Wall of China. So it's fascinating to watch all his like anti-Chinese racist stuff that he does on Twitter. He's become this like caricature where he pretends that he's this crusader against masks. I mean, this is a guy who got an autism mandate done for healthcare when he was in the state Senate, completely different person. Then you've got this guy McCloskey, who everybody will remember as the guy who came out and waved along with his wife in AR-15 at BLM protesters uh, outside his house. Oh my God, that guy's running for Senate? Not only is that guy running for Senate, here's the thing nobody talks about with that guy. That stuff is all crazy and we should, and, and it's disqualifying, but that stuff happened in like June, I think, of 2020, like in the middle of lockdown. And that guy has on a khaki pants and a polo shirt and it's tucked in. Like what kind of psychopath had their shirt tucked in in June of 2020? Like that's important. And, you know, and then there's some other characters in the thing. But wow. Yeah, he should be disqualified for tucking his polo shirt in. I mean, it's what kind of a what kind of a person was doing that then? I did it as a school principal only because I made our students do it. So if anybody wants to dig up those photos and throw but them, but not in my during face, I know not they during exist. lockdown. Not, no, I hear you. I mean, like people were just in their homes wearing sweatpants. This guy's in khaki pants with his shirt with a polo shirt tucked in. What's going on? Doesn't make any sense. Anyway. Amazing. Well, Jason, this week, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson has been in front of the Senate for hearings for her confirmation. So much has been happening in the world. I don't think this has really risen to the top of the news in a way it normally would. But I don't think we need to talk too much about this because I think she's going to get confirmed. But there are some notable critiques of her from the right that I think we can unpack really quickly. Two lines of attack on her. One is that she represented terrorists. And the second is that she's weak in sentencing child abusers. Jason, which one of these two do you want me to start with? Mm, let's do the terrorist one because I've heard the child abuser one, I think. So yep. yeah, let's tell me about this terrorism yeah. one. There are two parts of it. I'll dispense with it quickly just because I don't think 9-11 politics really wins the day anymore. But this is kind of a throwback. She represented uh, people detained, four people detained in Guantanamo. And Lindsey Graham, among others, are saying this is her defending terrorists. The quick answer to this is that all four of the detainees that she defended have been repatriated to their home countries, three to Afghanistan, one to Saudi Arabia. None of them have been charged with a crime. 
So there's that. There is one thing, which is that she signed on to a brief that accused Bush and Rumsfeld of being war criminals. It seems like this was a form of brief that like a lot of people were using the same language at the time. And she disavowed those statements. But I don't think any of that is going anywhere just because like nobody just the 9-11 stuff I just think doesn't work. And none of these people were credibly accused of a crime. Uh, so, so I think it's important to remember yeah. that there were innocent people in Guantanamo. Like I have a yes. I have a friend who was a JAG prosecutor. He's a really conservative guy, like a, a Republican big time. He was assigned as defense counsel to Guantanamo and didn't want to do it, but went down and did it and ended up interviewing. His, his, first time he sat down with uh, one of his clients, it was a kid who had been in there since he was like, 14. And what had actually happened was he was put in there for uh, aiding the enemy because when he was questioned, he just told the story of what happened. And it was that the Taliban came through and he gave them bread because they came into his house and were like, do you have any food? And he was like nine, like seriously, like nine or something years old. And he gave him bread. And he was just like trying to be transparent in this interview and was like, yeah, I gave him bread once. So they threw him in Guantanamo. So my buddy who like went into this job thinking like, I can't believe they want me to defend these terrorists, ended up going to Afghanistan, doing a full investigation, taking it all the way and getting this kid finally cleared. And it's to him like the most important thing he's ever done in his legal career. So like there were innocent people there. I'm glad we had good lawyers who worked for him. Not only innocent people, we were waterboarding some people who seemed to be innocent. Yeah. There's whole books written about this, basically just like repeatedly torturing the shit out of people when they just didn't have the answer to give, which is just like maddening to think about. And also, by the way, like a war crime. So, yeah. And, you know, people forget, you know, about uh, what happened to Abu Ghraib and Rumsfeld is like, you know, we don't, we don't need to go back way, way back. We got plenty of problems today. Speaking of the problems today, the other accusation here, and this is the one that I, that I think got most of the airtime, is that she was weak on child abuse. Let me address another issue that came up yesterday, and it's the issue involving child pornography. The senator from Missouri has, in his tweets, said of your position on this issue, Judge Jackson has a pattern of letting child porn offenders off the hook for their appalling crimes. I thought about his charges as I watched you and your family listening carefully yesterday. Could you tell us what was going through your mind at that point? As a mother and a judge who has had to deal with these cases, I was thinking that nothing could be further from the truth. It basically comes down to there was a decision that she made to sentence an 18-year-old to three months in prison, and that 18-year-old had images of child sexual abuse in their possession. And this was allegedly a shorter sentence than the guidelines recommended. Holly was pushing her on this, and she explained it by saying Congress in the sort of guidelines and, and, and statute asks her to take into account certain things like what does the parole officer or probation officer say have to say about it and also what's the age of the defendant? And this is an 18-year-old to remember. I don't know the full extent of this case. I think this is hard to make stick. Like, is the allegation that she likes child abusers? Like, that's a hard thing to make stick, you know? Right. That's the problem is he's not assigning motive because he can't because it makes no sense. Like, we're just going to try and get people to believe something as absurd as that, which means there is a nefarious wrinkle to this, Jason, though, just to make it even weirder, is that she sentenced the Pizzagate person, ah. like the person who over. So there is a bunch of online quackery on this kind of stuff. And I the cynic in me believes that Cruz and Holly and these people are performing for the QAnon nutjobs who have all sorts of theories about who 
Katanji Brown Jackson is. It's not that that makes sense, right? Because particularly yeah. with regard to Holly, like you got to remember all of these lines of questioning of a nominee that everybody knows is going to get confirmed. These lines of questioning are about the questioner. They're not about the nominee. And so yeah. what is Holly's deal? Holly's deal is, hey, I want to be the guy who everybody sees as the really intellectual conservative, but who yes. also can get votes from the people who don't like intellectual conservatives. So what Holly is constantly trying to do, and Cruz too, to a certain extent, although he has dipped much more into trying to be a lot less of an intellectual conservative because it didn't work for him in 2016. A lot of them, particularly Holly, are trying to skate that line. Remain the intellectual, respectable person who can walk into the country clubs and that kind of thing. Country clubs in, in, uh, in Virginia. DC suburbs, and, yeah, to be clear. He, yeah, yeah, to be clear. And yeah. so so my, my point is like, that's what Holly's trying to do. Holly doesn't want people to be able to write articles saying that he's saying this QAnon stuff or that he's linking Pizzagate, but he wants to be able to wink at it. He wants the Reddit boards and all that crap to use the Holly stuff without having any direct quotes from Holly. Like it's, it's like uh, opinion laundering, you know, and it's frankly pretty cowardly, but also really effective. And you got to hand it to him. Very smart. And you can't dismiss it. Yeah, there's a, there's a third angle here, which is CRT stuff, and it basically boils down to her sitting on the board of some private school in D.C., and she was asked, like, what books, like, like I think it was Cruz or somebody, like, asked her, like, what books they were teaching. It was just so stupid, and she's like, I don't know, I'm a federal judge. I don't know what books are going to <laughs> school is so stupid. <laughs> You know, Jason, I'm not getting any younger, but on Friday night, I like had a true party night. I went out in Brooklyn. It was like I was 25 again. But then I woke up the next day and I did not feel 25. I felt like I was a million years old. And I discovered a new use case for Athletic Greens, which is almost like a hangover cure. I mixed it up. And obviously you've talked about how like it it's kind of a catalyst for hydration, but I use AG1 also to kind of jumpstart my day when I was feeling at my worst possible over the past few months. And it worked. I got back on my feet and I had a relatively normal day. And I and I thank our, our, our people over at Athletic Greens AG1 for that. With Athletic Greens, you're investing in all-in-one nutritional insurance. Tons of people take some kind of multivitamin and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. What if you could use science to discover more about your body all year long? Give yourself more clarity and better understand your health and wellness with EverlyWell at-home lab tests. EverlyWell at-home lab tests give you physician-reviewed results and personalized insights so that you can take action on your health and wellness all at an affordable and transparent cost. With over 30 tests, you'll be able to choose the ones that make the most sense for you. Food sensitivity, metabolism, sleep and stress, and thyroid are just a few of the many options. Here's how it works. EverlyWell ships your at-home lab test straight to you with everything needed for a simple sample collection. Using the prepaid shipping label, mail your test back to a certified lab. In just days, your physician-reviewed results and actionable insights are sent to your device. And you can share the results with your primary care physician to help guide next steps. Over a million people have trusted EverlyWell with their at-home lab testing. And for listeners of the show, EverlyWell is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash majority54. That's everlywell.com slash majority54 for 20% off your at-home lab test. Everlywell.com slash majority54.
let's talk Ukraine really quickly as we sit here. And remember, we record on Wednesday afternoon, so much can happen. The war is now entering its second month. The United States and its allies are continuing to be united against Putin and pushing for increased sanctions. Biden is uh, set to land in Brussels today and is expected to announce more sanctions on Russia before meeting with NATO allies and the European Union. And he's going to travel to Poland after that. This is all uh, happening as Mariupol, the port city, is under siege. It is horrible what's going on over there. They're basically destroying that city. While that's happening, the uh, Ukrainians appear to be, at least at the moment, successfully halting the attempts to take Kiev and also going on the offensive, the defensive offensive in the in the south of uh, Ukraine. And there's a lot of chatter here about whether the Russians have gotten over their skis. Jason, you know, there's a lot happening there. Where do you think this goes from here? So yeah, the Ukrainians, it appears, are starting to retake some territory because the invasion has stalled and, and the advancement has stalled in a lot of places. And what that means is, is that clearly Putin has made the decision that like, okay, this is going to be a long war, right? Now, is a few weeks, like, can we say this is going to be a long war a few weeks in? I think, yes, in modern warfare and the way, you know, given the expectations that I think Putin had and that the world had for the Russian military to be able to come in and take over a, a much smaller country. Yeah, I think at this point, he's in for the long haul. And he also is, I think, looking at it going, all right, well, it's not like there's an international reputation or a lot of international relationships to salvage here. And it's scary because he's he's pot committed to borrow like a poker term, right? Which is why you're seeing this disgusting shelling of civilians, including in cases where it looks as if they've reached some sort of accord to let civilians out. And then it turns out that they haven't. And Yeah, shooting at people, by the way, identifying themselves clearly as journalists, for example. Right. The New York Times today has a series of sort of like photojournalism that includes stuff like outside the theater where they've written in Russian the word children on the ground. And yet it's, you know, they were still, it was still getting bombed. I mean, it's, it's evil stuff, obviously. And what I'm worried about is I think the same thing the Biden administration and that NATO is worried about now, which is if Putin's back is against the wall and if Putin figures there's nothing for him to be gained by being cooperative at this point with anything, by trying to you know come to the table and do what's being asked of him, that's when you get into a spot where it's like, are we looking at chemical or biological weapons potentially? And, and I'm very concerned about that because that's a red line where how does NATO respond to that? Because it's very hard to make the argument that NATO doesn't have to respond forcefully to that once that percent crossed. Yeah. yeah. And then you're in World War Three potentially. And the numbers here are pretty staggering. The estimates I was reading this morning say that there as many as 7,000 Russian soldiers have been killed, including some high-ranking generals. That's more than Iraq and Afghanistan combined in terms of U.S. casualties, like in this one month of this war. And this is in a situation where Russia has three times more armored vehicles, four times more ground forces, five times more tanks, and 10 times more aircraft than Ukrainians. Ukrainians are unbelievably capable given the asymmetry here. And there was this really interesting interview Derek Thompson did with this Russia expert named Rob Lee this week that I found really fascinating. And essentially what this guy Rob Lee was saying is Putin is high on his own supply here. He's buying his own bullshit. He's so isolated that he thought that what was going to happen was Crimea, that he would come in and that the Ukrainians would basically be fine with it, right? Or like some kind of version of what happened in Belarus where he's able to take that almost in the, like with very few casualties relative to what's happening in Ukraine. And so he was convinced himself in his own bullshit. 
And that is combined with the fact that when you have such a megalomaniacal dictator, there's all sorts of corruption and inefficiencies that happen. And his military essentially doesn't know what the hell they're doing. And so they were like, you know, for instance, you know more of this stuff than I do, but they were like rolling in tanks when it was very clear that this is not the kind of war this is going to be. And they also like early on didn't take out the air capabilities of the Ukrainians when they had a chance, which all just suggests that they didn't think this was going to be a protracted war. Well, like, for instance, going in tanks without infantry accompanying it means you weren't in any way anticipating being in urban warfare. It means what you thought was going to happen was you were going to be in a conventional fight outside the cities, tank warfare, artillery and air superiority mattering, and then that was going to fold and you were going to roll into the city and that'd be over, right? But that's not what's happened. On top of that, it also means that there's no way around holding Russia accountable for these war crimes. And here's why. Just like Ukraine has been in a position to massively exceed expectations because their entire military has been on a posture of preparing for this exact battle for years, like they're built for this and that has allowed them to to do much more than people expected. Well, it's not as if the Russian military wasn't expecting for years to potentially carry out this operation, which means their preparation of the battlefield has to have included mapping out where the civilian targets are, where the conventional military targets are. So it's not like they just randomly found themselves in a situation where, oh, you know, I don't know how bombs landed on that school or on that hospital. No, like you've got what are called target reference points set up in your entire system. You know what's what you've known for years. And that means that when they're bombing hospitals and they're bombing schools, they're doing it because the mission was to go bomb a hospital or a school. Now, they're going to argue, and they are arguing, that, oh, well, some of these facilities are being used to staging ground by Ukrainian military. And I'm sure there are cases where, you know, a school building is being used by some Ukrainian military because they had no choice, but it's definitely not the majority of these. And even in those cases, it's not like you can't justify still making it a military target because remember, not to get too in the weeds, but the laws of war don't just include lives and civilian lives. They also include things like civilian infrastructure, civilian buildings. Yeah. You can't just blow up a school. Like the idea is that even if there's no kids in that school, they're supposed to have a school to go back to. You know, and one thing to keep an eye on is Biden called Putin, I believe, a war criminal, which has huge implications. And that that rattled Putin. I'm concerned about where I think that's the right call. I think he is a war criminal. So it's not Biden's fault that he had to make that determination. But that's going to if you think about it, that means that it triggers all sorts of things, which means Putin can't travel as a as a head of state in the way he otherwise would have. Like, for instance, he can't come to the United Nations, for example, which, you know, we even allow North Korean diplomats to enter New York. I used to see them at the UN all the time because we take seriously our convening power here in the US. If we start distinguishing between people, we'll ne- we won't be able to host the United Nations. But if you're a war criminal, it's different. You step foot here, you can be arrested. So that's going to have huge implications for Putin, how people determine this question of the war crimes. And this makes me, it's both the right call, but it makes me worried because it, it means that his calculus is like total victory or nothing here. Like, I don't, I don't see where he an easy exit for him from this this terrible decision he's made. You well, know? and here's here's the other thing that people aren't really. I mean, people are talking about the refugee crisis in Europe, and and it is inspiring the way Europe is is taking in now three million Ukrainians, half of which are children. But personally, I'll tell you, it really impacts something else, which is there's a lot of Afghan refugees who still need to become evacuees. They still need to get out of the country, 
And then there's a lot of evacuees out of Afghanistan who are still waiting in Europe to be processed to come to the United States and other countries. And this has compromised that. And so it's, I'm not criticizing anybody for that. I'm saying, I just, I want people to know that that has complicated that process, which continues. Yeah. Let's let them all in, man. I agree. We we should let them all in. It's not like, yeah, it's not like we don't like have uh, jobs for people here. We have tons of jobs that aren't being taken, you know, like what's the argument anymore? We should do it for moral reasons anyway. Well, Jason, I noticed that Spencer Cox, the governor of Utah, who's been on this podcast before, you know, made some news this week. Yeah. uh, Spencer Cox, friend of mine, friend of this show, vetoed the uh, bill having to do with transgender athletes in, in women's sports. And, you know, we wanted to close the show with this for two reasons. One, Spencer is a a friend of ours, and it's sort of a follow-up on him having been on the show. I mean, he's also like the only Republican elected official who's ever been on the show. And two, you know, we talked about a lot of dour stuff uh, in this episode, and I want to close with something that I think is reason for people to have some hope that there are some good people out there. So Spencer, you know, he, he vetoed this legislation. He is the Republican governor of Utah. And I was texting back and forth with him when I read that he had vetoed it and just telling him, you know, that I continue to be proud of him for standing up to to meanness and cruelty. And what he was saying was, I mean, he was just basically saying, look, I'm going to keep trying to do this job in a way that I find morally right. And we'll see how that works for me electorally. May not be great, but that's what I'm going to do. And I'm proud of him for that. And in this letter, there's a part that I think is really important, which is he kind of closes the letter and you can check his Twitter if you want to see the whole thing. Uh, He closes the letter with this. He says, finally, there is one more important reason for this veto. I must admit, I am not an expert on transgenderism. I struggle to understand so much of it, and the science is conflicting. I know there are lots of people, going back to the first topic we talked about, who may have a problem with the way he addresses this, but I think he's coming at it from an honest point of view, saying to him, the science is conflicting. He says, when in doubt, however, I always try to err on the side of kindness, mercy, and compassion. I also try to get proximate, and I am learning so much from our transgender community. They are great kids who face enormous struggles. Here are the numbers that have most impacted my decision. 75,486 and 56. 75,000 high school kids participating in high school sports in Utah. Four transgender kids playing high school sports in Utah. One transgender student playing girls sports. 86% of trans youth reporting suicidality. 56% of trans youth having attempted suicide. And they skip ahead a few sentences, and he says, Four kids trying to get through each day. Rarely has so much fear and anger been directed at so few. I don't understand what they are going through or why they feel the way they do, but I want them to live. And and so, like, I just think that that's a reason to have hope, that there are some people out there who are trying to do the right thing, regardless of the letter next to their name. And I just wanted to shout out Spencer for it. Could you imagine a world where that was the Republican on the other side of the table? Yeah. Well, think of how much better. It's not just that like we agree with so much of what he's saying. It's like that's a reasonable position that like you read that and you can think a lot of things. And one of them is not that's not really what he feels, (laughs) you know, Yeah, like 100 percent. That's the hard. That's that's the harder choice when you're a Republican. Exactly. You know, the easier choice is to pull a Josh Hawley. Right. Can just demagogue every issue. And I guess to me, the point, it's not just about being hopeful, but it's also about the value it is to the debate overall when people say what they really believe, right? Which is different than saying what there is an audience for and what you can get clicks for. If somebody is out there saying, kind of to bring it full circle to the beginning of the episode, if they're saying something they truly believe and, and this is important, and they're still interested in learning more, going back to that old thing, you know, the woke must make room for the still waking. If they truly believe something and 
they're interested in learning more about the topic, well, that even if you disagree with it, that's generally going to make the debate better as opposed to worse. I have a theory about this, which is if I remember correctly, Spencer has approximately a thousand children. So I think maybe <laughs> like his conversation with his kids, like, you know, young kids, they know more about this stuff than anybody. Now I learn more from talking to young people about this than anything. And I bet you he's had some good conversations with his kids. That's my guess. Well, he told us on the episode with us that it, he said something along the lines of he doesn't think that the values of his party right now line up with the values of his kids. And that makes him concerned. There you go. See, see what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, there's there's hope for the future. People have been asking for more hope. There it is. As always, you can leave us a voicemail, 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbanile. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. I want to take a moment to talk about something I care about, a functioning democracy. A bunch of us in the podcast world have partnered with Represent Us, a grassroots organization. And we're spreading the word about efforts to protect our elections and pass laws that will make our government truly inclusive. We're doing this because it's time to take a stand. America's democracy faces urgent threats, but we can build a fairer path forward together. If you care about this issue like we do, there are ways to get involved. Visit represent.us slash podcast to learn more. That's represent.us slash podcast. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.